This is a becoming creature. On this episode, Andrew and I have a laid-back conversation about music, social media, overcoming depression, how we think about and experience the world, the post-social media environment, and much more. I hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the incredible, impeccable, irascible, and sometimes irreverent virtual instinct. <laughs> he also goes by his Christian name, Andrew, but you can find him on Twitter at virtual1nstinct. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm fairly new to audio and audio engineering and anything everything but uh you said you were in a band yeah i was in a band back in high school we played a lot of like indie rock and punk rock and such and uh before this started off we were actually talking about uh clipping audio forms when you're recording something like this you got to sort of play around the game and such when you look into the sort of technology behind like disordered guitars and such they actually, they use um, clipped waveforms to create the distinctive sound that they make. And there's a whole genre of music out there called noise music that was around since, I think, the 80s. Mm. I'm going to say like the 80s, although it goes back way, way farther than that. Noise music is one of my personal favorites because you hear things in noise music that you won't hear until 20 or 30 years down the line in the mainstream. Like... If you're really into, say, hyperpop right now, like uh, artists like Sophie or Charlie XCX or anything like that, they are all taking influence from people way, way back, like uh, Merzbau and Sonic Youth, um, which are both like very well-known uh, noise and noise rock acts, respectively. Speaking of music, I had this weird <laughs> idea yesterday about, you know how uh, Matty Iglesias has A Billion Americans or that, that book about A Billion Americans. I was thinking, mm -hmm. I was like, music is becoming so much more siloed and niche. It's at the point where I can listen to the same genre as someone else and we could have almost no overlap. And I'm just thinking like, in this world of A Billion Americans, it's going to become kind of like the internet is now like everybody kind of knows what twitter is and what reddit is and what facebook mm -hmm. is but there's just so much out there that there's no way that you could consume like all of the um you know metal that's coming mm -hmm. out every day it's just too much do you, do you have any thoughts on that i don't know it's just an idea i was kicking around yeah that's um i would say that that's happening in music way more now and i don't I know what you're getting at here. It feels like almost a problem of discovery, but also a problem of saturation. And I don't think that it's just a thing that happens in music. I feel like there's this uh, increasing push. Maybe it's due to the, you know, capitalistic system that we live in to constantly be creating new, ever more niche sorts of forms of entertainment and media. And there's this strange trade-off that happens where... The more niche you go, it's almost like the harder it is to relate to people who are outside of that niche, 
but the easier it is to relate to people inside of that niche. You know, there is a point where you go too far and then you find yourself just inside of a niche of one and then it can become really, really hard to relate to people. So. Yeah, Seth Godin talks about this a little bit. I don't know if you're a fan of Seth Godin, but uh, he talks about like the thousand true fans mm -hmm. all the time. He loves talking about that. And um, it gets to that point where we were talking a little bit about legibility the mm -hmm. other day. And... Um, it's about choosing who you want to be legible to and choosing uh, a kind of language, right, for a specific mm -hmm. audience and not even necessarily in a jargony way. But when we discuss meaning, that's probably different than the average person. Absolutely. Or, um, we, Absolutely. we have a lot of these concepts like nebulosity um, and th there's a ton of language we throw around mm -hmm. uh, that that means a specific kind of thing. But um, it's kind of like on Twitter, we have this group, right? The in-group. But <laughs> got to wonder, like, how many of these exist in the world? How many of these, you know, niches that people are a part of that feel like a truly cohesive system that is an echo chamber of good ideas? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think a lot about it. Like, how can I find those other areas? And the same thing with music. Like, I, I listen to a lot of electronica and indie music and, and rock. Um, mm -hmm. I love like Radiohead, TV on the radio, um, <laughs> but even stuff like Lexus on fire. Mm -hmm. And if you were going Spotify and you're trying to find that perfect sound or something that really vibes with you, it becomes a lot of work. Like you got to go through a thousand <laughs> songs to find an album mm -hmm. that really vibes with you. Yeah, I've definitely had that experience. Um, my little brother is actually, uh, he's currently a student at UMass Amherst, and he has a couple of tracks on Spotify, and he's constantly talking about how the big problem with Spotify and its uh, major playlists right now is that they don't translate into um, new fans for the artist. They just translate into single plays while you're on that playlist. And then let's say you are on the, I don't know, Adrenaline Workout playlist, which yeah. is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> You know, not not for artistic reasons. It's like a purely, you know, like I'm trying to get my exercise in. This is exactly what I need right now. Um, if you're on that playlist and you're on there for like a month, you're going to rack up a ton of views because or a ton of plays because you've been on there. But very, very few of those people are actually going to even know who you are. You're just kind of like background noise and you're not actually like creating the uh, the fan connection that leads people into the group, you know? That makes total sense. What I'm thinking of is like on Twitter, you can tell mm -hmm. a joke and it can reach 10,000 people and you can get like one or two followers. And then another time you might be talking about a, your experience and it can reach a tenth of those number of people. But a lot of people resonate mm -hmm. with it in a certain way where they get interested in you and they're following you. I think a yeah. lot about how that applies to other stuff. And that's awesome because you, you're talking about how that applies to music. Yeah, it's a much more generalized phenomenon. I was actually trying to sketch something out for my little mm -hmm. brother the other day. I'm someone who has a, a background in mathematics and sort of influenced the way that I talk about more philosophical mm. concepts now. And I was essentially tracing out this sort of power law distribution and explaining to him, like, this is basically how human mm. beings interact with each other. The person who is closest to you, you're probably going to talk with them maybe twice as much as the person second closest to you. And then the person second closest to you, you might talk with them maybe one and a half times as much 
as the person third closest to you and so on and so forth. This is something that I recently posted about. There was a, there was an interesting paper that I don't entirely understand called uh, Dunbar's circles of acquaintance as a null model. And it just got my head thinking about that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's this concept, uh, you know, we talk in the in-group a lot about hondoism and the barbell strategy where like you put some of your effort into things that are extremely popular and then you put your other effort into things that are extremely niche. And I think that in the context of the Twitter in-group that we're in, that always seems like the best way to go about things because the niche stuff that you post is where you find your true friends if that's what you're looking for on Twitter. And then the very common stuff is what you put out there to get people interested in you in the first place. Right. And this is why dating can be so boring because <laughs> people are always like, what television shows do you watch? Mm-hmm. And now television is like itself is so niche that you're like, uh, you know, you, you'll say the one popular show that everybody's watching, but you've already had this conversation a hundred times and yeah. you're, you're suddenly both <laughs> bored. And then if you're watching a show that mm-hmm. they haven't seen, then it's like, what are you really going to say about it? But mm-hmm. it's it's that uh, lowest common denominator creates this small talk that's so low value, I find. But something I like about our community is that it's mm-hmm. kind of a celebration of the niche. You know, if somebody's into doing hula hooping or or doing psychedelic dance or whatever it is, everybody's mm-hmm. like, whoa, that's awesome. I love it. And it's, it's a kind of celebration of, of all the things that don't necessarily bring us together, which I really like. So I was talking a moment ago about Seth Godin and like having thousand true fans and finding your resonance. Um, Do you have any ideas on like how to achieve that in a practical way? Honestly, I don't know if there's any advice that you could give to someone in most situations beyond just you have to kind of go balls to the wall about it and sort of just treat it as a numbers game at some point. Mm. I mean, I think that it's a good idea sometimes to look at yourself as like a piece of like sculptor's marble in a sense. And your primary purpose is to try to chip away slowly and figure out what is the sculpture hiding inside of the marble. Cause great sculptors always say that they can sort of look at something and sort of already see like the shape that it's going to become. Right. And the only way to really do that is to just keep going and going and going and just try to chip away small pieces at a time. I wonder to what degree that's a real image and to what degree it's a kind of like a felt sense of where it's going. So I was talking to Kendrick Tan, who's a, an oil painter and, um, we have a group chat about art, even though I'm not an artist, but I, I'm just in there, you know, mm-hmm. sending out emojis. <laughs> but he'll 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 go through his process of, you know, he'll he'll sit with something he's about to paint for weeks before he starts on it, and then he'll begin with it, and then as he's going through it, you know, he'll see that you know maybe one needs a little bit more red in order to match up to his kind of platonic ideal that he has in his mind about where Mm -hmm. the thing should be. And that, I feel like that's a kind of felt sense in a large way. I don't know how visceral or how specific um, someone's image is, but that probably varies depending on the individual. 
yeah, I actually listened to the uh, to the Ton one two or three days ago, and I did find it very interesting because it very much had the flavor of something from someone who has been inside of that thing for a very long time and has had some pretty detailed thoughts about it. Not detailed in the sense that we're exchanging detailed thoughts right now, but detailed in the sense of like sporadic thoughts that have appeared over a straight decade of doing the same kind of work over and over, if that makes sense. And especially when you're spending hours every day in deep focus, um, which Mm -hmm. is its own kind of luxury in that it is so difficult and so rare to even find an excuse to be able to do that kind of thing Mm -hmm. these days without being seen. And it's kind of strange. Like if you were to tell people, oh, I meditate four hours a day, they they think (laughs) that you're you're kind of trying to fix something or, you know, it's difficult to uh, Mm -hmm. really justify that. But I I think it's really cool to have been able to interview him. but I'm going to segue into talking about some of your experiences. Um, I talk a little bit about my experience with depression mm-hmm. after I left finance and how I was feeling defeated. And I, I had uh, years of difficulty with that. And I was curious, what was your felt sense when, when you were experiencing your difficult times? Like for me... Um, I remember I, I had this specific image mm-hmm. of, of being uh, kind of trapped in an ocean, like swimming in an ocean, and I didn't know which way land was. And I could mm-hmm. paddle water, but I it didn't feel like I wanted to move in any one mm-hmm. direction because I feared it would be the wrong direction. And how did you get through it? Because something that a lot of people that haven't been in depression don't really know in a personal way is how it's like a downward deflationary spiral that is so difficult to come out of you know pulls you down and so i was curious about what your experience was and uh what else you might want to share about that yeah sure this sort of relates to something that one of my uh mutuals posted when i put up the thread about this earlier uh amir asked me about the process of creating a self-narrative So for me, depression has been a part of my life pretty much as far back as I can remember. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. First off, I was born with a a very severe case of atopic dermatitis, which is a very itchy sort of illness to have. And because of that, that led to a lot of secondary symptoms like chronic insomnia, um, inability to sleep, inability to focus. I also grew up without a whole lot of intellectual stimulation in my first several years or so, which I was constantly trying to reach out and find those sorts of things. But, you know, I didn't really have any books or anything in the house, and the closest that I could get is, like, turning on closed caption on the TV. (laughs) Uh, I was a very early reader, so it was... I guess that we had, like, something in the house that I was able to read. The thing about depression, at least the kind of depression that I had, is that for me, it came from a place of deep existential worry. And I'm not quite sure why these worries occurred to me so early, but one of my first memories is of talking with my parents when I was four Mm -hmm. and explaining to them, I don't think that God exists because how can an all good God create something like this? Well, at a young age, what is what is like all this? Like, where did you mean like war? Oh no, I I mean I was four. Like I was 
you know, I was as self-focused as any four-year-old would be at that point. So I was like, why would God do this to me? It just didn't add up. Oh, okay. So, so it was like your, your pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pain from the disease. Uh, which, by the way, I should mention everyone, it cleared up when I was around 14 or 15 almost completely. I'm in a much better place now. I would say that the thing that I miss the most about that is depression can have a severe effect on your ability to form autobiographical memories, I think. How so? Well, I think that it just interferes with the with the neurological processes of doing that sort of... It sort of just like downshifts the process by which your brain sort of stores it, autobiographical memories. Hmm. I don't really have a great memory of most of my childhood or even most of my teen years. I remember mostly like the vibes and the sensations, but of course when you're depressed... You know, the vibes and the sensations are pretty uniformly terrible, so it's not exactly stuff that I like to revisit all that often. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that. Depression affects your memories like that, but I, it makes a lot of sense because if everything is kind of low salience, mm-hmm. then that affects the way you store memories, right? Like, because um, especially if you're not sleeping a lot, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of our memories get stored in, in our long-term storage in our mind as we sleep, yeah. If you're not getting a lot of sleep and your experiences in the day are, are generally low salience, then your brain is just going to like throwing them away, essentially. Yeah, that's basically what happens. Salience in particular is a topic that I would really be interested to see more discussion of in the in-group because I've been saying mm-hmm. for the last couple of months, salience is to pre-consciousness what interest is to consciousness. Right. No, I totally agree. Like in the process of developing taste in an art, I feel like you can... If you're a beginner and you're not someone who is like a Mozart or something, you don't just intuitively have an amazing taste for a certain kind of thing. Right. It feels to me you really start to reach the point where you have good taste when you can see something entirely new and there are parts of it that just intuitively pop out to you and are salient to you in a way that they wouldn't have been like, say, three months ago. The interesting thing about salience, and this gets to meditation, Mm -hmm. is that salience has some innate um, structure about it where uh, something will appeal to you just because of who you are and what your experience is, but it's also governable. Mm -hmm. Not only can you control what's salient to you in the moment, and that is somewhat uh, what meditation is about. It's about opening that up. Right. Um, But it's also that you can govern how you develop your ability to notice things. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's, it's fundamentally shapeable by the individual. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be able to notice different things in wine, you can actually just use your mind and put a lot of attention on it and mm-hmm. create associations in your mind and become a master level sommelier. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can apply that to everything i feel like is what a lot of people are getting at with meditation um tasting the entire world in a way that opens salience up and um, allows you to improvise in the world in a state of beginning again and wonder and uh, a childlike approach i totally agree Mm -hmm. that we need to discuss salience more and I've tried to write on it a little bit, but mm-hmm. it just seems like one of those topics, like the free energy principle that <laughs> is just like really, really deep and really important. But yeah. I'm like, eh, I, don't, I don't 
don't even know if I can talk about this in a way that's especially intelligent beyond me being like, <laughs> yeah, for me, uh, salience always feels like it's connected analogously to the concept of the living line in, I think, Chinese or Japanese artwork, where there's just, mm. you want to look at a thing that you want to paint and you want to see that single unbroken line that sort of creates the form of the whole thing. And once you see it, it sort of, it sort of like jumps out at you. And salience to me always feels like it's connected with that concept. So the unbroken line. So is this mm -hmm. like a piece of art where there is one line and that's like the entire drawing, for instance? Um, It could be. It's really more of like a thing that artists use themselves to like start off a painting, you know? Uh, I don't know about this. Well, if you imagine like, a, let's say that we're looking at, um, let's say that we're looking at like a flamingo uh, in the Everglades. When you first... When your eyes first saccade over to the flamingo, there's an outline to the flamingo, and it doesn't precisely correspond to the exact shape of the flamingo. It corresponds to all the salient bits of the, of the bird, and the idea of the living line is that if you're able to expertly grab that and put that single living line down in like an, in like an unbroken sort of movement, you've essentially captured the, the essential form of the thing like in the way that you want to. That reminds me of like Picasso's bull, right? Where he's working mm -hmm. through the form in order to break it down into its its like most fundamental oh, yeah. abstract bits, mm -hmm. but to the degree to which you can still say, oh, that's a bull. Yeah, that's a Guernica, right? Right. But there are, um, you can see his working through going from an actual bull drawing to mm -hmm. kind of disjointed, simpler images. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of the whole approach of cubism, right, is to try to break things down to their essential shapes. And I think that took a lot of influence from African art in particular, uh, where that's like a very like interesting stylization of the things that they built or the, the things that they observed. So speaking of breaking things down and speaking of salience, what is your experience with meditation? My experience with meditation is that when I was around... I want to say 15 or so, I started to get really into meditation because I was having some problems in high school and I sort of wanted something as an escape. And like most things that I'm, you know, sort of proud of doing in retrospect, I basically just went to the uh, Cambridge Zen Center and I basically just sat there like once or twice a week for about two hours at a time, uh, just focusing on the breath. I didn't really ask them about, you know, any specific sort of techniques or anything. And I guess in Zen Buddhism, there isn't really like an emphasis on those. And then I carried that back home with me and I started doing it at home for a while too. I distinctly remember that around May of that year in high school, I had a sort of breaking point where I walked into school and suddenly I just felt like the weight of the world was just completely off my shoulders in a way that I had never really felt before. And it was... It was a very unusual experience. I'd never really had anything like that happen to me. My teachers definitely noticed that there was a distinct shift in my mood, and some of them were actually kind of concerned. I was still getting all of my classwork done. I was still showing up to band practice and everything. And so everyone thought, like, well, I, I don't know what happened to Andrew, but he, he seems he seems like he's getting everything done. What do, you, what do you think really happened there? Like, what's your interpretation of all of that? Well, there's a concept called, like, the Dark Knight of the Soul, which is where you have an experience that's really intense and it kind of shakes you to your core with these sorts of things. 
And I've always just seen it as like the opposite of that. In that first, it was not a permanent state. It was just a temporary state. And second, the effect of my mood was it just shot my mood very far upwards instead of, you know, dragging me down to like the, 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 the pits of Hades that I was sort of coming from. And you think this is, it was just due to long-term meditation, kind of in the same way that you might heat up a room, but an ice cube is only going to start to shrink after you pass a certain mm -hmm. threshold that you think you just passed a certain threshold when it came to your practice? I passed a certain threshold and then this, you know, temporary bliss state sort of sets in. I, I still kept meditating for that. And I was just like, okay, I guess it's going to pass eventually. Honestly, sometimes people talk in uh, concentration meditation circles about the, uh, the, the jhanas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And it almost, looking back on it now with the language that I have, it almost feels like I got kind of stuck in one of those for a couple of weeks. Maybe I hit the first or second jhana and it just didn't leave, even though they're supposed to always, you know, go away eventually. But this one just lasted for much, much longer than usual. I don't know much about that. Can you tell me more about how that works? I can't really claim to be an expert on this stuff, but, you know, Daniel Ingram has a has a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which is basically where I started when I started reading this stuff, like more in depth. And he makes a distinction between two different kinds of meditation. There's concentration, which is the usual, you know, focus on the breath sort of thing, which is like a very analog way of perceiving the world. And right. then there's insight meditation where you're trying to notice every sensation as fast as possible, um, right. which is understandably a lot more intense. When you go deep into concentration meditation, you can start to eventually hit these points where suddenly your entire mood basically shifts into a kind of state of bliss and there's all kinds of weird variations on them. It tends to be a very fast and qualitative shift. Like it doesn't feel the same way that meditation was feeling for the past 15 minutes or so. And he warns in the book about people who hit like the first or second jhana and they just, they just keep going back to it like some sort of drug addict chasing a high there are genuinely probably a lot of people out there who are doing that even today and they just don't really recognize it about themselves. What was your meditation practice like, or what, what is it like today? <laughs> oh man. It's basically a uh, honest to God, Nick, it's, it's kind of non-existent today. I haven't meditated in quite a bit. Um, I've just had too much other stuff on my mind, I guess it used to be fairly intense. I used to do it like three or four hours a day back in high school and then after high school, but before college. But it was always kind of the same thing, the concentration meditation stuff. That reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance, he used to do mm -hmm. transcendental meditation. He did it for like a year. And then he was like, I got it. I did it. I did it. <laughs> I, I totally understand it. 100%. Mm -hmm. I'm there. And then he just never did it again. <laughs> it touches on... Mm -hmm what we use this stuff for, right? That mm -hmm. nobody meditates to meditate. It's mm -hmm. everything is for some other reason. And a lot of the reasons that people meditate is because they're trying to resolve something. You know, mm -hmm. people are going to therapy because they're trying to resolve something or because they need a friend or, or something else. Um, but there's always this other thing. There's nobody that's like, oh, I want to be in line. No, you want to feel alive. That's what you mm -hmm. really want. 
Right. Uh, I mean, I spent a lot of my youth just writing poetry. Like that was my way of taking all the things I was experiencing emotionally, all, all of these two extreme experiences, and it was mm -hmm. a way of consolidating them and making them almost sensible to me. It was, it was a sense-making process. And then at a certain point, I changed schools and I wasn't mm -hmm. experiencing those, those emotions anymore and I stopped doing it. <laughs> Actually, that's interesting because I earlier in this, I had the thought to mention that when we were speaking about salience, one thing that I think I've done, which maybe not a lot of people try to do, is consciously keep the voice in my head quiet when I'm walking around parks and stuff mm -hmm. and just try to take everything in on a, on a nonverbal sensory level. Uh, since you mentioned poetry, I actually wanted to ask you, Nick, did you ever try that in your own poetry or did you ever try something sort of like that to see if it would maybe change the way that you write? So when you say that, do you mean meditation? Well, I always think of poetry as like a very sensory sort of, you know, writing experience. Hmm. Well, I guess I should first ask, like, do you think that you have like a very strong sense of an internal voice? Like, is it always just chattering up there or? I can explain it more when I was young because I was always writing. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was writing poetry, I wrote poetry every single day. And I, I would wake up in the middle of the night and just have mm -hmm. a poem and I would <laughs> write it. And I remember before I stopped, it actually got to the point where I could freestyle in my head so quickly that it was impossible for me to write it down unless I like Whoa. really, really tried to slow it down. Like I couldn't speak it. It was going mm -hmm. so fast in my head, but it was just because I was doing it hours a day in my mm -hmm. mind like it was in school. This gets back to you trying to kind of stimulate yourself that I was in this private school that was probably one of the worst schools on Long Island in New York. It was mm -hmm. just absolutely it was in a basement. I didn't even have any windows. I would spend oh, maybe half my day just like taking the floaters in my eyes and trying to mm -hmm. like move my eyes in such a way that they circled around things because I was <laughs> bored out of my mind. And one of the ways that I coped was by kind of just writing poetry in my mind. And um, my felt experience with it would be that I would just constantly be kind of taking whatever I was feeling and putting it into words in one way or another. And uh, it's kind of like Gendlin focusing where you're trying to find a handle for something. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that with words. So I would talk about things that maybe I never um, experienced, like mm -hmm. a certain country or a certain drug or something. But I just felt like it resonated in a certain way. And I, and I would write about it. But I, I still have that thing where I'm, I'm just constantly writing down ideas that, it's not a cope anymore. It's just kind of like, like a habit. Yeah. It's like my brain will say something and my response is, Ooh, I really like that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I remember when I was growing up and mm -hmm. I'm old enough to where I remember having no computer and no internet and mm -hmm. where, where it, when we first got a computer, it was just like for writing. And, uh, and then we got the internet and we got, Hey, well, and I remember like, yeah. when when it finally, like it clicked with me that I could hit Control F, and I was like, mm -hmm. "Oh man, I wish I could Control F everything in my bedroom. I wish I could Control F <laughs> in a book. I'll, I'll imagine if you could Control F a book." That oh my so goodness! Cool. But now I'm at the point where I'm like, I just want to be able to Control F all of my thoughts, <laughs> and that's, that's yeah. what, what my notes are. 
you know well that's the uh, that's the that's the platonic dream of uh, of rome research right now isn't it is the uh, the ability to just control f through all of your thoughts and maybe even like form a kind of uh undirected graph between them like oh these two thoughts would right. be interesting to sort of link together i've long had the idea that creativity if you wanted to boil it down to an atomic process it would be just two thoughts that were not previously connected in your head smacking off each other like billiards that being the association making mm. process yeah and the association making process you know if you can up the uh up the rate of that like that's how you get into the truly creative or like most creative areas of things so first off having unusual ideas in your head that can bounce off each other like ideas that are not super known in the mainstream mm. and then second finding ways to bounce them off each other in interesting ways that's how you sort of go into it and when we were talking earlier about the uh the idea of sort of uh, music becoming like increasingly more niche. I feel like this is the generalized phenomenon of that. People are always searching for new and more unorthodox ideas because when you have unorthodox ideas and you show them to the world, it's sort of signaling things about you that other people find generally valuable. But it comes at the cost of if you keep searching for ever stranger ideas and you don't ever try to loop it back to the mainstream, it's it's almost like you're on a conceptual rocket ship and you're sort of flying away from everything else at light speed. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. But it's also interesting how a lot of people do link back up to the mainstream. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. now every form of music has like an electronica. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can have electronica in rock, which you absolutely do. And then you have this more ambient uh, post-rock and you have mm -hmm. electronica and rap and hip hop and R&B and yeah. blues, everything, country. And so electronica is like the way that people are kind of bringing it back to the graph. It's like one of those mm -hmm. avenues. So we're talking a little bit about felt sense of uh, mm -hmm. all, all of this stuff. Did I answer your question about poetry? I kind of went on a rant there. It was actually a very good rant. Um, I found it really interesting. For me, the the phenomenology of poetry is sort of like you're trying to translate down sensory experiences of some sort into words. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I that's one of many, many different possible phenomenologies. And it sounds like you were doing something honestly far more robust than that, which I find really, really interesting. So I think I can explain this a little bit in... Uh, mm -hmm. based on like just a couple of my tweets so <laughs> okay i had like this silly um series of of rhyme tweets where i was riffing mm -hmm. on uh that song that goes i wish i was a little bit taller i wish it was a baller oh yeah skilo yeah <laughs> i wish i had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six four follow just because it's it's fun so i was just riffing on that um, mm -hmm. and also today i was riffing on like things that annoy us and irritate us and we find obnoxious and framing that mm -hmm. in within the concept of, oh, that's a bodhisattva kind of oh yeah, yeah motivating yeah. us to be enlightened. I did see that. And that mm -hmm. Right. So that's a totally different frame. But when I'm doing this stuff, like when I'm riffing on, I wish I was a little bit taller or riffing on this bodhisattva thing, I kind of, I'm just holding that concept in my head of, okay, what's a word? that rhymes in mm -hmm. one way with other words. And then my brain will kind of just match up with things. And then it'll be like, it's kind of like swiping on Tinder. It's like, no, 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 no. Oh. 
And that's, I see. Yeah, that's just what it is. You just wait for the association that's kind of like a higher salience. And um, mm -hmm. Dalton D. Emery on uh, Twitter was asking you about the background process in your mind uh, where you talk about oh, being yes. like a machinery with a mm -hmm. purpose. I, I got nothing like this. Like I, I have feelings <laughs> and I got ideas oh, flittering through, but I don't have any of this machinery. Can you talk about your phenomenology with that? Yeah, sure. So this is just a weird little thing that I've noticed sort of in the background chatter of my brain for a very long time, but it always feels like I can sort of picture like abstract movements happening in the, in the background of things. And it feels very much like machinery. Like, you know, right now I can see a whole bunch of things sort of whirring in the same way that you would see gears whirring. Like and then I sort eyes. of like, or with your, like your mind's eye, uh, with my mind's eye. Hmm. Yeah. I guess that, phenomenologically speaking it feels like it's kind of directly behind me um and that's usually about where it's placed i don't usually pay much conscious attention to it but i have this i have this theory that there's just um what that is is it's the brain trying to make sense of like some sort of background noise that's happening through the neurons of whatever mm. you know parts of the brain are firing off so i guess maybe my visual cortex is having some weird background noise happening and that's just where that comes from and you've always um, had this yeah i've had that yeah I pretty much always had that it was a lot stronger when i was a kid actually um i, I remember that you know i used to uh i used to stare at like blank white walls and just sort of like wait there until they started to like warp and contort themselves um and usually it started to line up roughly with the sorts of like little skittering things that i saw in the back of my head there was a good would you say it's in any way similar to like when you press hard on your eyes, you know, how you get like those firework blooming yes. geometric shapes? Yes. Actually, I would say that is a really, really good way to, to compare it to. One thing that I should say is that going back to the whole insomnia thing that I had, one of the things that I used to do was I would close my eyes and I would just, you know, stare off into the void mm. that you see when you close your eyelids. Mm -hmm. For me, it's usually... Um, a very like aquamarine blue sort of shape that's sort of swirling around in there. I don't know if it's the same for other people, but yeah, it very much looks like that sort of thing. There's always that sort of like low level uh, movement and almost looks like brownie in motion for the, for the physics nerds out there to me. <laughs> <laughs> like just a lot of stuff just moving around a little bit like shaking sand. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think mine's blue. I actually think it's closer to, orange with maybe some some blue lines in it but i'll tell you about mm. a weird kind of geometric thing that i used to have when i was a kid that doesn't mm -hmm. happen anymore and i don't know why but um okay so there was one thing that i still have no idea what this was but i would get this sensation in the back of my neck like there was a um, water rushing through a hose that you had kind of um cinched where you know, when the hose is tightening, it goes, it would feel like yeah. that in the back of my neck um, or mm -hmm. kind of like sand falling through an hourglass. And I would, I would get these images of um, it's like when you see stars, mm -hmm. um, but those stars would follow the outline of objects. So if I was staring at a tile, oh. I would see stars and the, the stars would like, Mm -hmm. go along the geometric shape 
of the tile. Or, right, they trace out the square or the hexagon or whatever. Yeah, or it would trace like the outline yeah. of a door. And this would happen, mm-hmm. you know, maybe once or twice a week where it would just be like, boom. And then I have it. <laughs> I try to hold on to it because it was so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. man, it's so awesome. Maybe you were maybe you were instinctually picking up the living line of the object. And like if you had if you had honed the talent a little further, you'd suddenly be like in an ancient like painting master. Yeah, I mean, there was there was something mm. really, really cool about it. But then, like, as I got older a little bit and I started thinking about it, I was like, this is going to be a deep brain thing going on. Like, this is an optical. This is something mm-hmm. going on way under the hood. And I have no idea. I still have no idea. I've never heard anyone experiencing anything like this ever before. But it kind mm. of to show how different our, you know, lived experiences can be that um you know you're just going through life with this uh you know geometric thing going on (laughs) and uh it's kind of a constant reminder Mm -hmm. that you're you're a little bit different and yeah i guess it's true that we all have that stuff right like we're we're all yeah yeah strange and special yeah i think that you know if people I get the sense that most people, if they stopped and really tried to observe, like, just the background processes of their mind, like, not in a meditation sense even, maybe just in, like, a walking around, casually checking back on it sort of sense, they'd probably find at least one thing in there that's genuinely unique to the way that they do things, Hmm. and that none of their friends kind of experience the world in quite the same way. And this sort of ties back to the idea of, like, you know, uh, one thing that I used to think about quite a bit was you can never perfectly understand someone else because they're always going to have like a different set of qualia that appear to them. And there's just something fundamentally untranslatable between people. And all we can really do is sort of hope that the imperfect translation that we give is good enough for our purposes. It sounds on its face. It sounds sad, but when you really think about it and you realize how true what you just said is the real magic is that we can communicate at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The fact that we have all of this stuff and that Mm -hmm. we make it work so well and that people get married and stay together until they die. Like the fact that Mm -hmm. all of that stuff happens and that we don't really just live in some solipsistic um, shark like existence is mm-hmm. genuinely incredible you know so there, there is that other beautiful perspective i suppose yeah you do have to wonder at a certain point like if we were born into an asocial species like a tiger for example mm. how deep does that asociality go because when you try to picture like a human mind a lot of us in the in-group like to talk about how it's actually a whole bunch of sub-agents communicating with each other but let's say that you're in an asocial mind is it still composed of subagents, and are they working together in a social fashion, or are they working together in an asocial fashion, even deeper underneath the hood? Yeah, I don't know how that works. It makes me wonder if if maybe we would just be like more likely to be a psychopath, like like ninety percent be psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, we would just be yeah. like completely operating under the sun. Everybody's <laughs> lying all the time just to get, but like, mm-hmm. and and then that's the world you live in. I don't no. know. I don't know what a uh, cat people would be like. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had a cat, so I, I really have no intelligence. You've never had a cat? Never had a cat. Oh my so. god. I love cats. 
my family was always uh, allergic, so we never had a cat. Oh, okay. I do have a large black lab that is 10 months old, and uh, we've been training her, but she is so full of energy that <laughs> that she really is sometimes too excited to, to, to hear it all. I'm pretty sure she just hears mm -hmm. like, and she just so excited. But <laughs> uh, it's nice because you're like, holy shit, I'm a big deal. <laughs> this mm -hmm. dog, I am as good as it gets. Yeah, dogs are wonderful for that. You really are sort of the center of their whole world. Yeah, I have both a cat and a dog. And originally I was a cat person. And now I'd actually say I'm, I'm very much like half and half. Although cats have always sort of been the been the natural home for me. I don't know. I, I do feel like the, my growing appreciation of dogs over the years really did come from my growing social skills in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, dogs are much more naturally sociable than cats. It seems to me like more ordinarily sociable people just pick up on things that dogs do in a way that less sociable people may not necessarily. But it's easy to train that eye if you want to do it. So we're talking a little bit about being social and and cat people and stuff and the <laughs> equitable pros wanted me to ask you uh, about the nature of identity in a post-social media environment i actually don't know what that means by post-social media environment <laughs> when is that gonna be but uh, what, what are your thoughts on this i always love getting comments from the equitable pros in particular because they're always like kind of cryptic and i'm always like what what's going on here <laughs> like sometimes Let's go to the bottom of this. Well, I think that we'd have to ask ourselves, like, what would post-social media even look like? That's really hard to picture, honestly. Brain <clears throat> I think, like... Like mind meld sort of stuff? Man, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> it's like one of those things, it's like, what, what's a post-agriculture world? Uh, I don't know, it's... <laughs> need that stuff, like, there's no going back. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I guess that now we would imagine as as an industrialized world, but I don't know if anyone was thinking about that back in like New Babylon or whatever. I mean, like social media, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how broad is that? Is that like just Web two point Isn't that Facebook and Instagram? Mm -hmm. If if that's what he means, like, then we're going to be moving toward. I think we're actually going to be mm -hmm. moving toward this more cyborgy, maybe um, brain chip type interface. Right. We're going to be able to have this deep interaction where we're more connected than we mm -hmm. are now. And right. um, this whole UI thing is going to be completely different in a way that we can't even imagine because it's going to be in your head. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. So people won't have um, a UI that's so kind of physical looking but it'll be mm -hmm. more of a mental illustration in your mind or maybe like a mind palace i don't know mm -hmm. i'm really reaching into the futurism here but <laughs> if that's what he means then uh right then where does your identity fit into this yeah that that raises that would raise some really interesting questions about where the boundaries of one's identity would be i think that give having given it a minute of thought i see like two different ways that he might be you can you can translate the phrase post-social media. Mm -hmm. The first one is a lot more prosaic, and that is simply you were once someone who was terminally online, right? Like most of our most of our audience, 
and now you are not. You decided to leave for whatever reason. The other night, I actually went on to Facebook, where you know I have spent the vast majority of my <laughs> of my shit posting days, and I, honest to God, realized going back to it, I was like, I spent ten years on this site, right, and it does not hold a candle to what I was able to get up to on Twitter within like seven months of using the platform. <laughs> that was such a weird realization. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, that that kind of thing applies to so much stuff. Like you, know, mm -hmm. you could spend six years in World of Warcraft or uh, four yeah. years in Rocket League and you spend all this time. And I think it's so key that when you're spending a lot of time in something, if you're doing something every day, you really mm -hmm. got to make sure you know where it's going because yes. you're not going to be the same guy five years from now that you are today. And you, whatever interests you now, if it doesn't serve a specific purpose, then you got to mm -hmm. wonder, why am I really doing this? So, for instance, with Twitter, if you get big enough mm -hmm. on Twitter, you can use that as a launching platform to do writing mm -hmm. or do a blog or do music. And you can use it for all of these different things. So I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons it's so great that, you know, if you get one follower a day, that compounds mm -hmm. and you can actually turn it into something uh, with some utility. And, of course, it's also social media. You're also sharing ideas <laughs> and growing as an individual and mm -hmm. um, getting asked strange inane questions from the equitable pros. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, you really got to be critical because like I played World of Warcraft and, uh, you know, it was nice. Mm -hmm. But if I have any advice for the not yet 30s out there, it would be like, you can do some hardcore savoring whenever you want mm -hmm. just make sure it's hardcore savoring it's not <laughs> don't do that medium mediocre level savoring mm -hmm. it's not worth it either you know play hard or work hard right but you got to be right. working towards something uh, a lot of the time yeah it's actually interesting that you bring that up because you know contrary to the fact that i'm a very like online person i've actually never really been much of a video game person and honest to god the reason for that was always that i was much more interested in the I guess, social aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. And video games just never really seem to be a great fit into that. By and large, they're very solitary activities, even when you're playing them sort of as a multiplayer experience. And I would always just wonder to myself, like, why am I putting in so much, like, cognitive effort into this thing when I could simply just be talking with people or, like, you know, taking in, like, new forms of art that engage me in the ways that I actually, like, really enjoy to? Well, it's like a cognitive sink, right? It's like you get that, you have this madness mm -hmm. rushing around in your head <laughs> and, and you're like, well, where do I, mm -hmm. do I do with this? And then people are like, here are a bunch of problems you can solve in this beautiful world. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that'll, you know, grab my attention for any amount of time. Yeah. Uh, but so much, so much of what we do, I feel like is seeking substitutes, right? We want a substitute mm. for meaning we want a substitute for challenge in real mm. life because challenge in real life is risky and you might fail and you might be judged by other people but risk mm -hmm. in a game is very safe you know but it can still give you that excitement and so it's it's this um like drugification mm -hmm. of the the body right where instead of getting yeah 
those hormones and, and those neurotransmitters from, for instance, love. People get it from drugs. Mm -hmm. And it's that that same thing where we're, we're seeking connection and we are embracing whatever fills it when there's money attached to it. For instance, video mm -hmm. games and social media, we're clinging onto that with both claws, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, you know, we were talking a little bit about how you can use Twitter as sort of a jumping off platform. The interesting thing is that I got on Twitter like pretty much with only the goal to just make some friends and sort of ride out the pandemic. Mm. My social media presence there has really sort of reflected that sort of strategy and that, you know, my follower following count is very close to one to one. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to put out a lot of different tweets and I don't really try to censor a whole lot of stuff. And also I just have a, you know, I have a DM graveyard of like probably a solid quarter of the people who follow me by this point. <laughs> the vast majority of people, I DM them just a couple times and then I, you know, ships passing in the night. But every now and then you meet someone who like, you genuinely just hit it off with them and you were super, super into talking with them a lot. And I think that Twitter has been really, really good for that for me. It's a different way of playing the game, I suppose. I feel like I have one of the weirdest like mm -hmm. entrances into the Twitter sphere because I literally mm -hmm. only went on Twitter because I was listening to podcasts and every single podcast I was listening to was like, follow me on Twitter. Really? Wow. And I was like, eh, well, I guess I'll follow these guys on Twitter. But I followed, like, I just went on Twitter and I added like 10 podcasts and mm -hmm. you know, I'm talking, trying to talk to people about philosophy and like mm -hmm. the, um, in the replies of these like million follower accounts and it was not working. <laughs> and I was like, huh, you know, this is, this isn't that great. So how do, how do you, uh, how do you change then? Um, if that wasn't working. Okay. So here's what happened, right? I was, I was listening to Sam Harris. I was listening to Shane Parrish's knowledge project. And then mm -hmm. from Shane's Shane had Tyler Cowan on his show. And Ooh, then he also had okay. Robin Hansen. And then mm -hmm. um, I think he also had, Kaplan or Kaplan came later. So mm -hmm. I'm following them on Twitter because I started following everybody that was like interviewed. And then mm -hmm. like, there's just this kind of like GMU, which is George Mason University um, core that started like forming in my web of people I was following. Yes. And then like out of that came um, similar and Eigenrobot. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I went into there, it was just like, boom. Oh, GMU is a whole scene unto itself. That economics department is just, <laughs> it, yeah, it's a scene. Like those guys are amazing. Tyler Cowan has one of the best podcasts, I think, period. Oh, absolutely. Oh, he, I love him. Like I, I will listen to anything that he interviews people on. Um, yeah. just because yeah. he's one of the only people that's like, oh yeah, I'm going to research this person for a month and then, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm just going to have a ball. I, it's so much fun. We are just about done here. I had a lot of fun talking mm -hmm. to Andrew. Yeah. So did I, I, I sort of see these sorts of things as like philosophical spitballing sessions, you know? Yeah. And I really appreciate your, um, your unique perspective and uh, your, your thoughts on things. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you. 
I had a really great time spitballing and conversing with Andrew, also known as Virtual Instinct. For more episodes of A Becoming Creature, check me out on becomingcreature.substack.com. The music was by Frank Ivy and Murphy Chicken, and I'll see you next time.